0: Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top of the line hunting knives we've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners too for just about everything for the outdoors check out midwayusa.com
1: it has a lot to do with what we're talking about about you know, you're, you're out there, you're doing it. You may be making mistakes. You may be, you may not know exactly what you're doing, but you're, you're actually out there doing it. And it's President Theodore Roosevelt. It's not the critic who counts, nor the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. This episode is brought to you by Waypoint TV. Waypoint TV has so much going on right now. They have over 70 producers that put their content on Waypoint TV, and you can watch it all for free on pretty much any device that that you have or have a desire to get. You can go to waypointtv.com. You can find out how You can download it on all of those different devices and they have something brand new going on. They have new written content on their website. Uh, They have a learning center, podcasts, blogs, more, all kinds of stuff over there. So check out waypointtv.com. If you're a fisherman or a hunter or just enjoy doing things outside, I think you're really going to like it. And did I mention that it was completely free? So check out waypointtv.com. I think you're going to be happy you did. Uh, Other things that we've got going on down this area. We have some new books that we have been reading in the book club. If you don't know what the book club is, you can go to com. At the top, there is a tab that says book club, and that's where I list all the different books that me and my friends read. The latest one was Grit by Angela Duckworth. I really liked that book. I thought it was interesting and kind of on the same level as another favorite of mine, which was Mindset, and both of those books are there if you like reading books like that as well as many other types of books you can check it out and see what we're reading if it's something's of interest to you you can get it there anywhere you get books I also want to thank you for the emails that you've been sending a lot of great emails and some good constructive criticism which I'll try to uh, take into account and make the show a little bit better also if you have guests that you like to suggest Many of the guests that we've had so far on this podcast have been suggested by you guys, so I want to thank you for that. Helps um, to find the interesting people out there and people that are doing really cool things. If you have guest suggestions, send them to podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. I also want to thank um, one particular uh, listener for the review that he left on on iTunes, And, and it's quite long, which is great. And I, I really appreciate his time. MT Newsom is this guy's name, and I'm not going to read the entire the entire part of or the entire review. But he mentions that that the podcast is purported to be about fishing for the most part, which is true. But it's about lots of other things, and he has picked up on that. And he left really a nice review, and very rewarding to have this kind of impact on someone. And I, I, I hope. That it's that it is not being lost on on everyone else, but he says this. Tom and his guests remind me of hiking around Jenny Lake with a girl who would become my wife, of the smiles of my firstborn at catching her first bluefish in North Carolina surf, or late night boat rides with friends in the Pamlico River, of airplane landings on faraway tarmacs. The production value is high, and Tom and his guests are honest, open, and share lifetimes of interesting experiences. Man, that's super nice. And uh, if our conversations that we're having on this podcast are are that meaningful to you, I, I really, really appreciate that. And um, so thank you. If you have a rating and review that you could leave on iTunes, I'd appreciate that too. Okay, so I think that is pretty much the housekeeping items that we have for today And today's podcast is going to be a very, very special one uh, because I have two of my very favorite people in the world, and those people are my son, Turner Roland, who lives out in Bozeman, Montana, and he is just now finishing up his first season as an elk guide. In his first season, he also happened to be my first elk guide and take me on my very first elk hunting trip. It was great. It was absolutely great. We went out there. It was late season, and it was cold and snowing, and we walked about 12 miles, mostly straight up hills or straight down hills, and got to see some of the most amazing country. But more importantly than that, I got to witness what it looks like for your son to be just super happy, just absolutely on top of the world. And for a parent truly really all you could ask for, all I can ask for anyway. He had a dream of becoming an elk guide and he made it happen, turned it into a reality. And I got to go out there and spend some time hunting with him and just watching how he operates. It was a great day. It was an absolutely fantastic day. One of, I'm super thankful for, for that time that I was able to spend with him. Uh, we're joined also by Turner's Roommate and good friend Brendan Smith, and uh, these guys went to high school together and chose to do something a little bit different than most of their their classmates. They chose to go to Montana State University and kind of buck the trend a little bit, go out to montana and both of these guys are just super happy. I mean they are doing exactly what they want to do. Brendan is a really avid fisherman, and Turner. Is, is really into the hunting and Bozeman, Montana is just an incredible place to be if you like to do things outside whether that's hunting or fishing or rafting or hiking or camping or whatever that is that place is paradise and this was a great check-in for to see how this decision has been going for them and how this you know the first couple of years in Montana have been and it's also a great time to uh, to learn about some really exciting plans that each of them have. Brendan is getting ready to, to head out on, on another really big adventure, and I enjoyed hearing from him about that. So stand by for a great conversation with my son Turner Roland and his friend Brendan Smith. Alright, I'm sitting here, Bozeman, Montana, coming to you from Bozeman, Montana. You've got two of my favorite people in the world sitting down here with me, one, Brendan Smith, two, my son, Turner Roland, and um, I came out here for my first elk hunt, guided by my son, and uh, he lives with Brendan, and Brendan and Turner were good buddies in high school, and then continued that friendship out into college at Montana State, and uh, currently roommates living together experiencing montana as it should be right something like that <laughs> <laughs> well turner you're you're coming off um a pretty exciting pretty exciting few months right
0: yeah yeah just finished up uh first guidance season for for elk up in uh just up a little north of us in the um in the Galtons.
1: yeah and so tell me about tell me about your first season
0: that was good, man. we uh packed into camp all August. So just taking loads. We're guiding in the, the uh Leemet Calf wilderness area, so no motorized vehicles, just just horses and we're up there packing um camp in, everything has to come in, everything has to come out every uh preseason and post season. So we were doing that get to um the first of September, which was opening day, and uh, had two weeks of interning to learn the terrain, learn how, um, elk act a little differently from, from where I've been hunting in the past, um, get to know everybody in camp pretty well. And then it's, uh, off to the races on your own for another four weeks of, um, two weeks of bow hunting and then another two weeks of rifle.
1: So then they just cut you loose. Are you operating out of camp?
0: Yeah. So we, um, we're about eight miles back and, uh, Operating out of camp every day. Uh, it's a six-day hunt, so um, six days of the week we're out there um, going out of camp and and hunting elk every day.
1: Wow! And what was the what was the result?
0: The result? Well, I was there for three, three elk on the ground, which I'm super proud of. So my first two weeks of interning, first week we got a uh, about a 280-inch bull, decent six by six on the ground first week archery and then second week archery we got a small six by six on the ground third week was uh a little slow called a really nice nice six by six in and just couldn't make it happen there's some branches in the way of the shot he was at 31 yards i think fourth week archery was pretty unproductive <laughs> <laughs> but um first week of rifle yeah i um got in my first successful client all on my own that was uh yeah that was right in there in the Gallatin's uh first week of rifle and then second second week was a little little slower bulls got a little wary we saw all the cows in the world but (laughs) i think we saw four bulls that week and they're all you know a couple miles away
1: yeah so now that you've had this first season what are your big takeaways from from your first season of of elk hunting
0: patience (laughs) patience persistence you know what's strange because I was doing a lot of the right things. Like so many right things and just one little wrong thing, which is mostly either being patient on a bull, being a little a little quieter on a bull, so not calling as much, um, or um really just knowing knowing elk elk habits a little more than I have in the past and learning from all the guys in camp. I mean, everybody in camp has a tremendous amount of experience. There there's there's one fellow there who's been guiding for, uh, 30 years. I mean, he started hunting there when he was 16. knows every, every little trail, every, every elk that's in there. And he helped a lot, um, with me and just helping me learn, um, answering all my questions and, and, uh, was, was pretty instrumental to, um, the success I had. So. Yeah.
1: So how did that work out? What was the, the dynamic like for, uh, young kid a new new person coming in and having this older experienced hunter pay any attention to you at all how how does that work out really well first it didn't <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> no i kind of just started doing favors for him he's a he's a super nice guy but you got to earn his respect for, definitely so while i was packing in i started riding his horses for him um he had First day pack, and I rode the owner's horse. He uh, lent me his horse. And then um, after that, I started riding a, this green Mustang that came out of the Pryor Mountains um, named Kane. And he's kind of been sitting all pa- on pasture all summer and was pretty green. No one wanted to ride him. And so I just started riding him and, and working with him a little bit. And he was like, oh, man, well, this guy, you know, kind of knows how to ride. He's, he's nice, I guess. And so then we started getting into camp. <laughs> <laughs> started getting into camp and um you know while i was there interning i got two bulls on the ground and i guess he was like oh well, maybe this guy you know maybe this guy wants to learn or maybe this guy might stick around for a while and and then uh first week of rifle killed killed an elk and uh i guess he um you know just uh realized that i had you know something off for camp and kind of kind of helped me uh become a lot better elk hunter this season. I mean, the learning curve, I thought the learning curve was super steep on elk hunting. My first few years out here, I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. But once you start guiding and start being out there every day, you, you are so in tune with Even the little things such as the weather, you know, what the elk are doing. Okay, well, this elk was out here yesterday. Okay, well, this wind's coming, usually coming down off the ridge in the morning. It's going up in the afternoon. So instead of coming up like I would, I know that the wind's going to be coming down. So we need to circle above them and then come down or, you know, vice versa. If the wind's coming up a drainage, you'd be like, okay, well, I need to go further up this drainage to come down because these elk like to feed down in the meadow at night and then they come up the ridge in the morning. So we're going to start down in the drainage and work our way up at shooting light. Just little things like that. You're just so in tune with, and it's so fascinating to, to ha- you know live with the elk. I mean, you're living with elk. Like we, we would hear elk bugle all night long while we're sitting in camp. But, <clears> I mean, we, I've heard stories of elk waking people up in the morning. That didn't happen this year, but they're, they're everywhere, man. I mean, we go right behind camp and there'd be elk. Like It's, it's, it's pretty cool. And it's a pretty cool place. And, There there are a lot of elk there and, and just observing them and living with them and waking up every morning and hearing bugles and you kind of start to recognize like different bulbs, bugles and be like, okay, well, like, I think I heard that one yesterday and this is what he did. And so you're going over there and playing the wind and the thermals and, you know, waiting for him to switch because a lot of times there'll be a, there'll be a bad wind. And so you're like, okay, well, the elk are right there, but we can't get them right now because... No, there's a barrier or there's a cliff or something or maybe it's just thick in there and they're going to bust us so let's wait for the thermals to switch and mm. then they're going to come right to us and um that's that's what happened uh it's kind of what happened first week of rifle but um yeah i mean just being in tune with your environment and your surroundings and living with the elk and then living with the bears and the wolves and there's just so many factors and so many things going into it and then you start to overcomplicate it and then you start to oversimplify it and then there's just so many things going on. And Ed was the fellow's name, has been guiding there 30 years. And he, he, you know, he'd answer all my questions and make, you know, I'd come into camp and just seeing him hunt a little bit and, and, and seeing the way he talked about the area, I was like, man, this guy, this guy knows what he's doing. So even just simple questions that some people would roll their eyes out like, man, when do you cow call? Like, you're super successful. I know when I cow call, but when do you cow call? You've killed you know 30 elk Mm -hmm. so you know maybe i'm doing something a little wrong or not right you know it seems simple you know when do you cow call it seems like an obvious question but sometimes it's not sometimes these answers are a little hidden or maybe there's one situation where where you can ask them a super simple simple question he can give you a super simple answer but when you're in that situation you're like oh man well this is what i've done and the elk haven't the elk didn't come in Mm -hmm. so maybe i'll try this and then true shit here comes the elk <laughs> you're like man <laughs> this guy knows what he's talking about
1: yeah well i think it's i think it's pretty mature of you to realize that you can't just go stomping into a new place and have the older more experienced people you know expect that they're going to help you out i think that that's um pretty pretty wise really to to think okay well i'm going to need to be doing whatever kind of work i can i want to take all the dirty work all the dirty jobs and really start to develop a little bit of respect and then just keep your eyes open and your mouth shut for the most part. And that's the way it worked in fishing. And it's interesting that it worked in, in elk hunting, but you, you guys are both doing things that are a little bit off, a little different than, than a lot of the people that you um, graduated from high school with. And just kind of interested in how, how that worked for, for both of you, how, you know, let's back it up a little bit to, First of all, I want to go into into how how you made this elk hunting guide operation happen because this has been a dream of yours for a long time. And even though I'm in the outdoor space and I, I know a lot of people, I don't really know anybody in the elk hunting world <clears throat> necessarily. And so I couldn't, I I didn't help you get this job. So how did that happen? That that you find this opportunity, or you create this opportunity for yourself, or if somebody else was thinking about doing something like that what does it look like
0: well i guess those are two kind of separate questions i'm gonna i'm gonna tackle the first one the how i got into it it really started from an extremely early age I th- you know 12 i think i killed my first year with with granddad you know just a little four point buck michigan four point so a a two point in montana that mm-hmm. you know it has four points from there i just kind of Started to started to like kind of look around, and I was like, "Man, that's coolest thing I've ever done." I say, "Coolest thing I've ever done." There are a lot of coolest things I've ever done. <laughs> you know, we you know when I was growing up, we you'd pick me up from school and we'd go catch tarpons. Like that's that's one of the coolest things I've ever done. But uh, I start kind of started to explore, and then we got into turkey hunting, and I killed my first turkey with you, and then I killed two more, and with you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Turner does all the killing <laughs> in that same year, and. I think I saw my first elk hunting video that next year, and just immediately I was like, man, that looks something I'd like to do. And I saw another elk hunting video, and I was like, you, "Like, where is this? And I, and then I was looking at where it was, and it's in the mountains, and and I was like, man, that's, I'm going to do that. I kind of set my mind to it, and I remember I, probably from when I was 13, I was like, dad, let's go elk hunting, let's go elk hunting, let's go elk hunting. Like well, when you can carry a fifty mile pack, fifty pound pack for eight miles, well then we'll go elk hunting. I was like, okay, well, I don't know, (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) Then I started looking more into it, more into it, more into it, and um, just every year I think I wished for Christmas an elk hunt, and it just kind of wasn't. Feasible, we didn't know anything about it. It was 2,000 miles away. was probably the nearest elk. Now, I mean, they're elk in the Smoky Mountains and everything. Even though they're extremely hard to draw, you can still go look at them. Mm-hmm. But just kind of this... I was just really interested with elk. Almost,
1: almost to a... To so you, a, you have the interest, but how does that turn into actually having the, the, uh, the opportunity to, to do it professionally?
0: Oh, yeah. So after... Gaining some experience elk hunting, getting some good experience elk hunting. For whatever reason, I, I uh, took a semester and uh, went back home to get this these contacts um, that now allow me to see. You know, twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Just wanted some time at home at a really very stable, I guess would be the right word, environment where not a lot's going on. You can kind of get used to these contacts because they're it's basically a hard piece of plastic you put in your eye. Like it's not an activity that i would describe as fun so (laughs) i just wanted a a really relaxed atmosphere and i was going to school back in chattanooga just kind of took a step back and didn't really like what i was doing like i now all i can think about was you know elk in the mountains and 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 all everything i watched was elk hunting and i just kind of started to think about it and i was like man well i don't even know i don't even know if i'm gonna get to go elk hunting this fall like i might be back in chattanooga like the deepest sense of like disappointment <laughs> overcame me to the to to the point where i was like man i'm just gonna guide like i'm gonna go out there and this this is what i'm gonna do like i i just can't think about anything else i can't function without doing this so i'm gonna go and i'm gonna guide and i came up to you and i was like dad i think i'm going to do this you're like okay well how are you can do it i was like i don't know <laughs> you know i don't i don't know where to start how did you start you're like well you know i started with this guide school and so i started looking at guide schools i was like i don't know if that's what i want to do there wasn't really any i couldn't find any good information on and like to find a reputable guide school i found a couple that i was a little interested in but it didn't really appeal to me that much and so I came back to you again and I was like, Man, I don't know about this guide school. Like, you think there's any way that I can just do it? You're like, Well, I got this advice, you know, one time that 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 said to write a letter a week. You know, I can't remember the exact story, but I started getting in contact, you know, as technology advanced, you know, I wanted to take advantage of that. So I I got into contact with one outfitter or day, actually. Whether that be uh, like phone call, email, um, or handwritten letter, I just started calling up everything from Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, Idaho, Utah, Montana, Wyoming, even Alberta. I was mm-hmm. I was calling everybody. No one really gave me the time of day because who wants to hire a guide that doesn't have any guiding experience? And finally, I called um, this one fellow up who. Um, owns a outfitting business in Alder, Montana, Broken Arrow Ranch. And I was going to, I was going to ride horses for them, train their horses in exchange for an opportunity to guide. And that kind of fizzled in and out, fizzled in and out, started, kept on making calls, kept on contacting these, um, these, these companies, these outfitters and ran into a guy who Josh Abbott, who I work for now, who's the owner of the outfitter and he actually did the same job in Yellowstone that I did. Oh yeah? Yeah. He he worked as a Wrangler in Yellowstone. He actually worked in Canyon Lodge, one of the two locations. Mm-hmm. Now I worked in the other one, Roosevelt Lodge. And so did like so did another guy and like four other elk guides that he knows. And so he was like, oh you worked at Roosevelt. Oh yeah. Yeah, I know that. Do you know this person, this person? I was like, yeah, I know them. Okay, well do you know this person, this person? I know them too. <laughs> and then just by strange coincidence, one of the guys that graduated from the high school that me and Brendan went to was a guide for Sage Peak Outfitters, and so we kind of got to talking. And I was like, "Well, I'd really like to guide this fall." And it's like, "Okay, well, we're actually looking for a guide, but you know, I'll make sure he's a you know a good elk hunter and can you know uh, give good customer service and make sure his clients." Are all taken care of, and so he calls Creighton. He's like, "Hey, man, do you know anything about this guy?" He goes, "Yeah, actually, I do. You know, we have a bunch of mutual friends in common. You know, he. I don't really know anything about his 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 hunting, but um, let me give a, another call to a friend who knows him a lot better. And so, just through the process of like recommendations and the process of bugging the stew out of him, I got the opportunity to to guide help.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, that's that's cool. That's a, and and what I like about that is that there's persistence, but it, it certainly didn't happen in the on the first try. And that that advice that was given to me was from Michael Pollack. This is before the internet. And I asked him one time, I was like, what do you do? You know, I was asking him kind of a similar thing. Like, like, give me some help here. How do you how do you grow your business? How do you do these, you know, create more business and everything? He said, Well, I I write a letter a week. And I was like, Really a letter a week? Like who, who do you write them to? Like I don't know. I just make sure that I write a letter a week, I'm trying to dig in a little deeper. I'm like, who, who would you possibly write a letter a week to? He's like, you know, reps for tackle companies, tackle companies, my clients, anybody, you know. And so the beauty of that is that a letter a week is not too much. But where the real magic comes is when you decide that you're going to do that, and you 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 come up to a week. And you've already written your old client's letters, and you've already written all the tackle reps that you know letters, and you've already written the tackle companies that you know letters, and you have literally have no one to write a letter to. And so you're racking your brain of, if I've got to write a letter, so who am I going to write it to? I don't know. And you just keep racking your brain and racking your brain. And maybe maybe this week you write it to the editor of a magazine and you're like, you know, I really, I really like the articles in your magazines and I write some articles. Maybe I could submit one one day. And you just expect to get nothing back from, and you get nothing back from 90% of these. But if you just keep doing that, and today, like you can easily write an email a day. Like whatever you wanted to do, you could write an email a day very easily. So easy to get somebody's contact information on the internet now. You write that letter a day or an email a day, and you'll get something back from one percent, maybe ten percent. Ten percent would be great. But eventually you you create this opportunity to make something happen. I think that's super cool. And man, what a what an incredible opportunity. I mean, we had a really great time. I mean, we're coming out extremely late season now i guess
0: it's pretty late season i mean they're done with the rut they're you know bulls are batcheling up in their back and grouping up in their bachelor groups and cows are i didn't really expect
1: anything other than i just wanted to spend some time with you i wanted to see what you were kind of doing and i mean the whole introduction your entire introduction to this place that's out this window right here bozeman yellowstone jackson area was basically to come out here and go hiking and that's what we did you know as a family we would just come out and go hiking and you know you're in this incredibly beautiful area and you know we've hiked to some really cool stuff and that's kind of what elk hunting late season elk hunting was like like we went to a place we got on a trailhead we started walking on public land then then we go veer off trail and you're you're following and all these tracks and then we're mostly, we hiked 11.8 miles. Most of that was straight up or straight down. <laughs> and I just thought it was super cool, man. I mean, I see how people get really, really into it. Yeah. So,
0: so I want to hear, I want to hear like your preconceived notions of what elk hunting would be like and then what you think of afterwards.
1: Well, I didn't, I didn't really have any preconceived notions because the only thing that I know about elk hunting is that you can get, some people get really, really close to them, like elk hunting, archery hunting, I mean, for for elk. And so I realized that this is a different season and we're going to be doing different things. But I really, you know, I've been in the outdoors most of my life and and certainly have spent a tremendous amount of time fishing and guiding and managing people's expectations as a professional guide. So I try not to have any expectations. My expectation is that I'm going to be able to spend the day with my son and we're going to have a great time no matter what happens. I mean, we could have a survival situation and it's going to be a great day. Well, I mean, you
0: packed for it. Yeah.
1: Well, you told me it was negative five. <laughs> I'm coming straight from Key West and uh, I'm deciding that uh, negative five, I brought like 300 pounds of clothes, <laughs> but I, you told me what to get and I got the right stuff and it was, it was great. And if anything, I was too hot, you know, because I mean, it is, it is incredibly physically active and fitness is, is paramount in everything that you're doing in this type of hunting. And so obviously I love that. I mean, the harder it is, the more I'm going to like it. And the further we have to go, the more it self-selects who's going to go back there. And so the further you go, the less people you're going to see. And I'm all for that. I love that. And so I really didn't have any expectations. I kind of had a suspicion that we were going to get one. I really did. I, I really thought we're going to get one. And I was already planning on packing it out. Like, That's when
0: you get in trouble, man. You're like, no, all right, no, well, how am to no, pack it no, out? No, 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 no. <laughs> it wasn't like that.
1: It wasn't like I'm planning on packing it out. I planned on packing it out with what I took in, what I was wearing, how much water I brought, because I am prepared for a hundred pound pack out. That's what I, I mean. And whether we got one or not, I was prepared for that. Like I didn't have my, I mean, my pack on the way in was light, but I made sure that I had plenty of water because in training for the go ruck and all that stuff, I mean, I know what a hundred pound pack out for 12 miles is like it was with sand and not with a, with an elk leg, but you got to drink a lot of water. I mean, you don't just, you don't just carry a hundred pounds on your back and go, you know, 10 miles and not carry a lot of water. So I was prepared for all of these things. I didn't really fully expect that it was going to happen, but it wouldn't have surprised me if it did, but it also wouldn't well, have I mean, surprised based, me if it didn't.
0: Based on the amount of tracks we saw, I mean, oh, there are tracks were everywhere, everywhere, man. And we were just, I think we were just a couple of days too late, yeah. you know, with their migratory patterns. And well, we saw but, plenty
1: of deer and then we saw lots of tracks and that well, was, that was what was really cool. You know, I had this I kept thinking all day long, like we're doing this. Um, we're doing this, this this elk hunting, and we're in a, a public land area, but we're late season, so there is a a foot. I mean, it, it's not an yeah, exaggeration probably, you know, to probably say if, eight inches of snow. Okay, on the ground. so eight inches of snow, and then the day that we're out there, it is snowing hard. When we st- An hour after we start, it starts to snow. Then it starts to snow harder, basically, every hour that we're out there, which was the entire day. And by the end, you know, we we had an accumulation of at least three or four inches while we were out there. Yeah, I'd say so. So What what I, I was fascinated with the tracks and how we were looking at the tracks and how we could tell that the tracks weren't today and how you could see deer tracks that definitely were today really fresh. Mm -hmm. And you could see your boot track and you could see how everything was was different. And then you could come back across where where we had walked and you notice how your boot track is now filling up with snow. And so then you compare that to the animal tracks and you're like, okay, well, that's at least a day old and without knowing a lot about it. But I kept having this thought and I was like, wow, this is incredible. Because if we came up here three weeks ago when there was no snow, Everything looks perfect, and we know that this is a place that elk like to be, and we know that this is a place that a lot of elk have been killed in the past. This is a great area. And we go up there, and we hike around all day long, and there's no snow on the ground. You would be thinking, man, I know they're there, and we're just missing them.
0: I don't know, man. I've been in a lot of situations where I'm like, man, I don't know if there are any elk here. Well, (laughs) well, right.
1: But but when there's snow on the ground, and it's covering everywhere— There's no missing it. There's no mistaking it. Like, we could look across a half a mile across or even further with the binoculars, and you could see the tracks going up the hill. Yeah, we were talking about that and
0: and be like, man, I wonder how many animals passed through there. You know, this this mountain range is X amount of years old. Right. You know.
1: And and that was so cool. And I kept having this thought. I was like, how much different would flats fishing be if fish left tracks? Like, like if you could see, and you can in the Bahamas. Like, you remember when we went to the Bahamas and I was showing you those little horseshoe-shaped things? Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. Look, this is where bonefish have been feeding through here. Okay, for whatever reason, the bottom structure in the Bahamas allows for that way more than the bottom structure in the Keys. I don't know if it's just harder or what, but you go in the Bahamas and you can clearly see where a hundred bonefish have gone through and they leave almost what looks like an elk track, on the on the sand. And you can go through there and you can tell that's very fresh, like they are just a hundred yards in front of us somehow, or that's like yesterday or whatever. We don't see that in the Keys like they see it in the Bahamas, but that's a place where you go, this looks like there should be bonefish here. There should be bonefish here. And you pull around and then you look at these tracks that they've, that they're leaving where they have been feeding and you're like, yeah, I knew they were bonefish here. I knew they would be here. And they may not be here exactly when we're here, but this is an area that they like. And I kept looking at all these tracks that we were seeing going, man, this is really cool because you can come up here and you have immediate validation of, okay, I think they're going to be elk here. Sure enough, there were a lot of elk here. We may have missed them by a day, but then you start, you know, over the years, I'm sure you'll start to... To get better and better at honing in when they're going to be there and when they're not going to be there and when too late when it's too late and when's not and you know that's going to be the, the time as you start to get better and better you know you just kind of look at an area or whatever and you just probably eventually after doing it for 20 years or whatever you just know eh, should have been there last week probably now we're going to move over to this other drainage And that's probably where they're Well, that's what we did.
0: Yeah. You know, we were looking at the elk tracks and they were heading down. I'm like, man, they're heading down. They're not in the flats out. Because we can, we were in a spot, very famous elk hunting spot, very widely known. And you can kind of see down on the flats. And so we were glassing the flats and there weren't any elk there. So it's like, they're obviously still in the mountains.
1: That's what I like so much better about the Western hunting than the Eastern hunting is the, is the opportunity to get on one of those places where you can see this big vista. And just like what we you know, what I kind of think was your your introduction to this type of hunting was us in quotes hunting animals in Yellowstone by just pulling out on the on the pullouts and everybody getting out with their binoculars and seeing who can see what. Like that was our game. Yeah. That was our we game saw some crazy that we played. Stuff
0: like that, man. We saw that one grizzly bear uh running downhill chasing, chasing that elk calf. We mm-hmm. saw uh a pack of coyotes uh actually get an elk calf. All these hat elk- Man, we have some mm-hmm. crazy elk I calves. know. Remember, And then I'm lucky I ever went elk hunting again, man, because remember that time in, uh, in, I think it was Mammoth Hot Springs where I got attacked by that cow elk?
1: <laughs> you didn't really get I attacked. I did get
0: attacked by a cow elk, man. <laughs> I thought I was going to die that day. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you, I told you not to go out that back that, door. I didn't know door. an elk was going to attack me. <laughs> well, I, I was telling you, I mean, we're in the park. And there's a lot of things out there. It's the first thing in the morning and so turner goes out the door and he he starts screaming and he's on one side of the car and there's a, a a mother elk on the other side of the car and turner goes one way and the elk goes that way and then he goes the other way and the elk goes that way so there's this car in between <laughs> the two of them i was like what is all that noise and i open the back door like why did you go out the back door? I'm, you were terrified that elk. I was twelve, man. It was an like eight hundred pound animal. at me down. It was it was it was nerve wracking. <laughs> uh, but it all that's why you're so mad at him now. Um, <laughs> it all worked out. Well, you're just over there. You were no help at all.
0: you were just laughing at me.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I I shoot it away <laughs> eventually i knew if you stayed on their your one side of the car you were going to be fine
0: well what happened was is that the calf her calf got i got in between the calf and the mama Mm. and then her calf stayed behind me and then eventually the calf went back to the mom and there was this like subaru behind you know in between me and this elk that wanted to trample me and i say i got attacked because man it happened there was a it happened to me. But there was another lady in Mammoth who got trampled by a cow elk. By elk this
1: They're no thing. joke.
0: Yeah, man. It's no joke. And I was a little 12-year-old kid, yeah. terrified, in tears. And I look over there, and you, Mom, and Hayden and Hannah are just dying. Like well, that. it was...
1: You, <laughs> and the moral of the story is, listen to your dad. <laughs> <laughs> I told you you were going out the front door, and you went out the back door. Well, I didn't know that... the. Fear of death would be in my well, eyes if I didn't. <laughs> better better a cow elk than a grizzly bear. Yeah, true. And, true. you know, it could happen anywhere in the park. But uh, so anyway, that's that's super cool. And, and I'm glad to hear that that you did that. And we have Brendan here, too. I want to hear Brendan's story, too, because Brendan has been doing as passionately as you've been going after the hunting. Brendan seems to be going after the fishing. And it's slightly different story, but you guys went to high school together, kind of at different times, like you, you plan to come to Montana state far sooner than Turner did. And Turner was a late, late decision maker, but what was your decision like to come out here rather
2: than, than, you know, what everybody else was doing? I've always been in love with the outdoors and growing up, I was just like Turner, dad, when can I go fishing? When can I go fishing? And I remember I started fishing when I was two years old and grew up fishing on a finger lake in upstate New York. Every summer we'd go up there and I remember watching my dad's cast go and go up in the air and I just thought that was the most beautiful thing ever. And I went to a uh, fly fishing camp when I was I think nine or 10 mm-hmm. and I went there double sessions, both sessions <laughs> <laughs> and I loved it. Went three years in a row. And that's actually when I saw Mr. Rowland for the first time. I didn't even know Turner at the time, and he was cast in football field length, and it just blew my mind. (laughs) And and I'd always thought, man, I want to do something different in my life. I want to, I want to do the thing that really makes me come alive. And I knew that uh, I got this. I went out to Bozeman and visited my buddy's ranch, and we went to this pawn shop in Bozeman, and I got this velvet painting black velvet with white paint, and it has these mountains and the northern lights and a cabin, and I have it, had it above my bed, and I'd go to sleep every night. I was a senior in high school. I thought I'd stay in the south and uh, go to Georgia, but I'd look up at that painting, and I'd, be, and I'd say to myself, man, that's, that's the dream right there. So, just being there. Just being there, and I, I knew that nothing was stopping me from making that a reality but myself and so i decided to pull the trigger and make it happen and uh at the time no one else was going out there um i just knew it was something that i had to do so when you're when you're thinking about that i mean the rocky
1: mountains are a big place and there's there's colorado and there's even you know southern rockies utah kind of area and then you have two different schools
2: in montana like what what drew you to to montana state so, I toured both Montana and Montana State, and when I was thirteen, I came out to Yellowstone for a fishing trip mm. with my dad and I remember going out there and I was like, "Gosh, like I was in the the hotel looking up in Bozeman after we flew in I was looking up at the mountains, like, "Wow, like is this even real?" Yeah And I was blown away, and just the the access to fishing around here and uh skiing really really drew me. And I, I just felt it really came down, I felt at home in Bozeman. Yeah. And that's kinda. So what made also my an interesting thing too is like I think that a
1: lot of people one of the reactions that I get when I tell people that you guys are out here is like, oh, are they going to school? But I mean, you're <laughs> studying like real stuff. Like what what is your major? I'm studying computer science. And and with what you have on a different minor too?
2: I'm uh planning minor in music right now, but Kind of so, up in the air. But the computer science that you're that you're studying,
1: I mean, we talked about it a little bit before. I mean you're you're studying artificial intelligence and like all of these ways to create apps and like the stuff that you're studying is like hard for me to even understand. <laughs> but I mean you're going after it.
2: You're saying you're getting kicked out of the library at the the two AM mark, <laughs> yeah, the janitors <laughs> come, he's sweeping he's like, Man, like it's time to go. And I'm like, oh, go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not done
1: with your homework at 2 a.m. Yeah,
2: sometimes, you know, you got to crank her out until she's done. But, yeah, it's, it's kind of, I just put it in this mindset where if I, I like to work hard, play hard, and, you know, school comes first, I, I get that done. And then getting that done allows me to go to the river. But for me, studying computer science enables me this freedom to be able to work in any industry I want, and if I can, I can help like as many people as I possibly can. And it's really fascinating for me to learn about all these technological changes that are happening in the world. Yeah, I know. I was just talking to
1: you and you scared the crap out of me. (laughs) Um, like the, the artificial intelligence just blows me away. It scares me. And, And then I hear somebody like Elon Musk say that it's the, it's the devil incarnate and, and that that is absolutely what we need to watch out for. And I'm thinking, man, I am not the smartest person even in this room and artificial intelligence just scares me to death. Like, and we were even having some conversations of what do you think like with your, with your knowledge of artificial intelligence, what do you think the reality is that of these movies where the machines take over and then destroy mankind? And you were kind of like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's pretty possible. <laughs> and then, then I'm like, oh, man, I thought you were going to say it was just Hollywood. No, Brandon. <laughs>
2: so is it possible? I mean, it, who's to say? But right now, I think that's that's a really far far away where they have that full control, but we're at a very like golden age where we're at that turning point of where uh, we're giving all these machines the ability to teach themselves. And that's a very vital time in that process. We need to really focus on the ethics of what we are coding these machines to do and how they think. And so that's a pretty
1: big statement that we need to look at the ethics of that. So when you're studying this in a, in a
2: in a college environment, in a university setting, is that coming into the class at all? I mean, we have had ethics class, but honestly I think it should be focused on more. The power that people these professors are teaching their students is is pretty substantial and it needs to be used for good and it needs to be used to help people. A lot of people think, like, oh, the artificial intelligence is going to take our jobs. And But really, if you look over the timeline of history, Industrial Revolution, it may have taken out uh, some jobs, but it also promotes and excels jobs that we can't even imagine. Right, right. I mean, as simple as, as uh, you know,
1: 12 years ago, there wasn't such a thing as a social media manager. Like, I mean, and that's a very, very simple little mm-hmm. little example for what you're talking about. But there'll be entire industries that we don't even have a... Cl- I mean, we couldn't even possibly forecast out mm-hmm. that there will be these entire industries. I mean, who would have forecasted that there would be an entire industry around Fortnite? Or, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, I mean, that's not even that long ago. And now, like, it's crazy. I mean, but I don't know, when you said... When we were having the conversation about could machines take over and what really scared me about what you said is, is you're like, yeah, machines just, you know, you, you build this machine to figure out what the problem is and, and how we can reduce traffic. And, well, the real problem is that there's too many people. So just reduce the number of people. (laughs) And how do we do that? We just shut the grid down and everybody dies and there's no more traffic and that was it's like be careful what you be careful the goal you set mm-hmm, for exactly. for these machines because they are they don't they don't have there's not like no the yeah there's no moral compass to what they're doing and it's like they just have a goal mm-hmm. right, that you've set for them reduce traffic and they're like okay well the easiest way to do that is less people how do we kill the people the fastest?
2: <laughs> so I don't know if that's if that's reality or whatever, but that just kind of scared the Yeah, and that, out that's of me. a pretty extreme example, I think. But uh like how I do as, things, Brendan. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's it's real. And it's just people need to when they're coding these things, they need to be always keep in mind the, the consequences and the parameters that they are setting and the data sets they're using. because um, that all comes into play and uh, once, once it gets to that point where you're not really sure why the machine is doing something, that's when it gets into this gray area mm. that. Wow. And then what do you do? Unplug it? I mean, yeah. I turn it off and turn it back on. That's how I fix everything. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but what if it won't let you? Like all of a sudden the power button doesn't work and it just keeps going. We had this, we had this, uh, movie when I was a kid and it was called War Games and it seems like this would be a perfect time to reboot this. So this is like the second movie this week that I've thought would be the perfect time to, to reboot it. Are talking about a it. little Back to the Future talk? Yeah, Back to the Future. Yeah. <laughs> <We're gonna> have, <laughs> the Rock's going to be Biff. We <laughs> still gonna,
0: haven't figured out who Marty McFly is going to be. Zac Efron. Zac Efron?
1: Yeah, yeah Zach Zac Efron. Efron's going to be Marty McFly. He's going to have to lay off the weights a little bit, though, because Marty, I mean, he could probably take out Biff. But <laughs> we've, got, we've got The Rock is Biff. We've got Jack Black Uh, with his hair dyed gray Mm -hmm. as doc and spiked up with some grease yeah we've got um oh the girlfriend you had one the new zealand natalie rosser yeah
0: that's that's brennan's future chick right there i'll take your advice (laughs) on that one anyway
1: so now now that's the reboot but we had this movie called war games that was that was all about this machine that could could simulate war and then you would try to win and uh it got out of control, and it, it just kept going uh, and wouldn't stop. And um, so they had to stop it. Seems like that would be a perfect reboot. War Games. Anybody <laughs> in Hollywood listening, I, I, I'll buy a ticket. <laughs> and we got to have The Rock and Jack Black and somebody else is in there. Bradley Cooper. Oh, yeah. that's it. I mean, everybody will buy a ticket for a Bradley Cooper <laughs> movie, right? He's funny, usually. I don't know about The Star is Born. Um so anyway um one of the things that you said that was super interesting is that you said that the the more you study computers and computer science the more you want to get away from them and value
2: your time on the river is that is that accurate what i just said yeah or? that's totally accurate um so i i remember walking down uh the hallway the other day at school and i looked and 75% of the kids were were on their on their phones and it just kinda wowed me like there was no face to face communication going on. Everyone was just checking their social media, texting someone. And then I, I went upstairs and uh I went and I texted someone. Then I realized, gosh, maybe I'm <laughs> I'm one of them. Every time I go out and I go fishing and I'm just sitting there, the, the water's passing between my legs and I just casting and don't have a worry in the world and I just have this such a deep connection to the nature and I I think where all these people in New York City are these people in big cities that can't experience something as intimate as I'm experiencing right now and I I fear that that people are gonna constantly be disconnected from the primal instinct to, to get out in the nature and to really uh do what you love and maybe that that doesn't have to be nature but for me it is and i just feel a real connection to myself and to others and to when i go fishing with others i have such a great experience and stories to tell and as i study these machines and i sit there behind a computer for 8 hours in the day and all i'm thinking is dang i really want to get out on the water <laughs> <laughs> but i know what keeps driving me to keep getting behind this computer is to the knowledge that I can teach myself anything. If you're listening to this like podcast and thinking, man, I, I can't teach myself computer science. I can't give myself this freedom to be able to work from anywhere, to work on any project that I want. You definitely can. There's, there's free resources out there online that you can learn and you can teach yourself to really do anything that you want. And anything that you can set your mind to hmm. you can do.
1: Well that's cool including fishing right? Yeah. <laughs> like you... <laughs> So <laughs> definitely. Well, I I want to know if since you can teach yourself to do anything, what has your learning curve been like getting out here and and becoming like a fisherman on the rivers and tackling the drift boat and has has that been a super easy oh. process? <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, uh no. <laughs> so I started out, I got my drift boat last fall, and <laughs> I have a great story for y'all. So I, uh, first first few days having the drift boat, took it down the uh, an easy river, and that wasn't too bad, but then I tried to, I took it over down to Idaho, and went on this kind of boys fishing trip overnight camping, had two boats, it's going to be great. And we get to the, the boat ramp, and I'm putting it in, and I realize, dang, it's pretty windy out there. <laughs> like, ah, oh, it'll be good. Uh, it's Montana; it's always windy in paradise. And so, our—I guess that was Idaho, but both, both equally pretty windy. And we get in the river, and uh, we keep going down, and I am brand spanking new on the oars on the sticks, and I'm I'm kind of struggling a little bit, and. The wind is howling, and uh, to describe to you how strong this wind is, just to go downstream, I'd, ha- I'd be having to row backwards down the river, downstream, and to, for, to fish, it was incredibly hard, and if I wasn't rowing, our boat would be moving upstream, <laughs> and it was upstream wind, probably 40 mile an hour, and it was ridiculous. It was crazy, and kept inching. It was like I was in a marathon. Like (laughs) I was just signed up for the crew team and I was just rowing my heart out. I was breaking, I was sweating, it was cold. And I let one of my friends behind the oars and we went through this pretty technical section and there was uh, this tree that was overhanging in the water and it was really deep. And he ended up smacking against this tree, slamming up against it. And water just started pouring in the boat. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, oh, oh, my life, like, literally, like, a little bit flashed before my eyes. And I was like, whoa, this is this is intense. And I decided to instinctively jump on uh, the side of the boat. And, bam, it popped right up. But there was gallons of water in the, in the <laughs> boat. And I was just wide-eyed, like, oh, just didn't say anything and then we we parked the boat you know i got the little squirt gun i'm squirting it out and just thinking wow this is it's a crazy trip and we still had six miles of the river to go and the wind was still still howling we caught some ended up catching uh some nice 22 23 inch browns which is pretty sweet but man it it thought and then so we we start going down the river more it starts getting dark (laughs) and we uh we realize wow we don't know where this boat ramp is <laughs> <laughs> and it's still still windy still having to row downstream with my back facing the stream i'm literally having to look over my shoulder just to row and, and you're not letting any of your friends get behind no, the oars anymore no <laughs> it's it's pretty much me from there and we end up getting it's getting probably three miles from the the boat ramp on google maps and luckily um, we had some phone juice left, but um, I think one person had a headlamp, one, and then everyone's phone was about to die. With uh, We just had that phone light, and it starts to get pitch black, and we're prepared to huddle up like some penguins on the, the stream in Idaho, <laughs> on the bank, and we decided to keep on going, and finally we make it to the boat ramp, and it is midnight, and it is super dark, and get to the boat ramp, and we get there, and I, I don't know where the car is. Dude, where's my car? It's, I don't know. And we search <laughs> uh, 30 minutes around the boat ramp, finally find it. Thank God. And then, what you know, the key's not not there. It's oh, all locked. no. Yep. So, we end up <laughs> having to hitchhike. Did you think you might have lost him in the river? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a deep concern. I, I searched the boat. Thoroughly, and they were not there. I was check, double-checking the pockets <laughs> and ended up having to hitchhike by some uh, friendly fellow campers. Got uh, You had
1: to wake up at midnight. Yeah, just right.
2: to, <laughs> just to get, get some help. But luckily, people are nice and uh, were able to help us out and get us to the shuttle car, which luckily had my keys in it, and we were able to finally get back to Bozeman at a uh, an early 4 a.m., God. And this is day one with your new boat? Yeah, day one. Pretty much? Pretty much day one, and gosh, that scarred me. So if, if you're a new rower out there and uh, thinking, wow, maybe maybe that, like, you had a scary experience like that, and you're thinking uh, that it might hold you back, but don't let it, because... <laughs> <laughs> well, did you, did how, how quickly did you just jump back on the horse and ride? It, it took me a couple months, bucked. honestly, yeah. I was bucked <laughs> straight off and got stomped a couple times, but... <laughs> I was able to get back, get back on the the sticks, and uh, really just kind of take my time, and it really helped to get out with people that knew what they were doing. (laughs) It it helped. that 's funny <laughs> because it seems like that 's
1: pretty much the case in in every walk mm-hmm. of life that if you can actually go with somebody that knows what they 're doing, mm-hmm. you cut the learning curve and possible death curve mm-hmm. uh, but I mean they, these rivers around here are no joke man and 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 then you have you have situations to where um, i mean hypothermia is is real. And, you know, if you go out there and you get wet and the wind's blowing, now it's dark and, and you you get yourself in a situation to where you're going to have to spend the night out there and you didn't think, you just thought this was going to be, you know, a little three-hour river trip and bring your sunscreen and mm-hmm. nobody brings a jacket. I mean, the Rocky Mountains, basically, you guys have been out here. Plenty to, to know, but I mean, the first couple of weeks you're out here, maybe you don't realize that everywhere you go should be carrying water in a jacket because the weather changes super fast. And if you're going to take a little little day hike up one of these hills over here, <laughs> that could turn out bad. I mean, you you really need to be prepared around here because when it changes, it changes fast and the river can go even even quicker because you can get wet. When you get wet and that wind's blowing, that is bad news, <laughs> man. As you know, but but you
2: got wet yesterday, right? <laughs> oh yeah. So I went I went fishing yesterday and I uh, woke up at five o'clock in the morning. Went to some hot yoga. It was great. If you haven't done that, go do it. It's a great way to start off the day. And so after that, I was walking walking to hot yoga and I noticed it was it was pretty warm. It was forty five around forty five degrees. So and that's guess, in late November, mid November. Mm-hmm. And I was like, the fish gotta be moving. And so I'm doing, you know, I'm doing the warrior two. and I'm like, wow, this the fishing's gonna be really good after this. And, uh, sure enough, I get to the river, I call, or I call my buddy, and he meets me, and we go. And, uh, I haven't even cast yet, and I'm, we're going up to this, uh, one hole, and we decide, uh, it's too fast to cross. So we go up to the next hole. I go in, and I'm, my buddy's fishing in the hole below. I'm going to the top hole. I'm going across the river. And as I'm going, I look down at the rapids and I think to myself, <laughs> man, it would be tragic to fall into these rapids. <laughs> and it's no longer 47 <laughs> degrees, right? No, it is It is a 35 degrees, uh, like lightly sprinkling, about to snow. The weather forecast, it's, it's supposed to change into snow in a couple hours. And before you know it, right as I had that thought, couple steps I lose my footing on one step trying to <laughs> slam my feet down and next thing you know I'm my head's under the water and I'm I'm floating down in the river like a bug and I'm uh I didn't I wasn't really panicking but gosh it sure did wake me up and was cold. Yeah, the <laughs> it's a little chilly and so I'm uh I'm like swinging my arms like trying to get get to the shore but the river keeps taking me and taking me and i'm looking down at my buddy and i see him and he's fishing and he's like he's got the widest eyes so like oh man <laughs> and i'm about to be spit out right into his fishing hole but then uh the river decides to give me grace and i go out and get in, over in this eddy and i get out on on the shore and you know i've seen some survival shows and thinking i need to start taking off these clothes so i take off my jacket wring it out and i could fill half a bucket with how much water i had i decide you know what i'm i'm here and i'm gonna do some fishing my buddy's like oh do you want to you want to head home and i'm like i'm good let's get it so <laughs> and, you didn't fill your waders up no no i had a wading belt and that was that taught me i almost always have a wading belt and now i will always 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 have a wading belt mm-hmm. because you will you never know when you're going to fall. And be sure to have that thing tight because uh, nearly almost no water got un- under.
1: Yeah. Well, is... you know, there's, there's a lot of different kinds of waders. And the ones that you were probably wearing are the more fly fishing style where you have the stocking foot wader with the boots on the outside. And the boots have laces. Mm-hmm. And they're tight. And you walk a lot in these boots. So they're like a high top tennis shoe or even, even a boot that is, that is tight. So if you fill those waders up, it's not like you're kicking those out like a pair of boot foot waders that, that your your foot just kind of slides into and you fill those up and you could pretty easily just kick, them, kick your feet out of those and swim out of the waders. But that, this is a different deal altogether because you have, you have tied yourself into the waders. So without a wading belt, that's a bad situation. And I saw a guy go down like that when I was guiding and uh, he just thought he could walk across the river and it got deeper and deeper. And then he kind of thought, well, I guess I guess he was thinking, well, I'm already over this far. It's surely it's going to get shallower very mm-hmm. soon. And he could walk across. It was just a little side channel, but I'm making lunch for the clients. And I'm like, oh man, this guy's going down. And sure enough, he went down and uh, he did not have a waiting belt on and hit, he, he, he got tumbled in the current. And uh, luckily I saw him and did what that my outfitter that taught me how to guide was like you always keep your people upstream. So like if you're making lunch down here, you tell them to go upstream, not downstream, because if they're downstream from you, they get they fall and they get swept down current. There's not a lot you can do. But this one, I I watched him and he was way upstream and I had made a beeline for him and like actually jumped off the bank and ran over there and swam some and picked him up and uh, he w- he had the fear of God in his eyes. He thought he was. He was down because the waders are getting full mm-hmm. of water and they're pulling pulling you down. So that wading belt, man, good
2: good move there. But <laughs> you've always got some kind of story where you're getting wet or cold uh-huh. or something. And then so the end of that story is I I ended up going up and fishing and caught a nice brown, which is just such a big relief. And uh, I ended up catching a cutthroat in a stream that. They're almost never wow. never catch I've heard cutthroat. a lot about that the cutthroat in, in these different places that people haven't found them before
1: I don't know what that deal well, is I, you caught were, a, I caught a
0: cutthroat on the Madison a couple of, years ago I think
1: that's uh, that's not a place that I know that they live I mean that seems like seems like an <laughs> <laughs> But but uh, you know um, somebody probably does
0: yeah I think they're doing a lot of restorations on the like tributaries yeah that kind of go in the mountains, and I guess they kind of make their way down.
1: I'm always a fan of the cutthroat. I like the cutthroat. Mm. It's the Jack Crevel of the trout. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean, they 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 really like to bite things. They and they make a good good day. I mean, that's all we had in in the South Fork of the Snake River. It was mostly. I mean. It wasn't all that was in there. There were rainbows and browns too. But when I was guiding on the South Fork of the Snake River, it was ninety nine point nine percent cutthroats, and they were all seventeen and a half inches long because the slot was seventeen. And uh, no, it was the slot was eighteen, so you could keep a fish over eighteen inches. So they all these fish were seventeen and a half to seventeen and three quarter inches long. And <laughs> once they got to eighteen, the Idaho boys liked to take a few home. And uh, but anyway, I love the I love the cutthroat. They eat every kind of You'd every kind of fly. So, Brendan, you got a, you got. What's your plans for,
2: for now? What you head, What you, what's ahead in your immediate future? So, I am next semester. I am off to New Zealand. And so, is this is this a um, a school type trip? Or are you just going, or what? What's going on? I'm uh, studying abroad at the University of Otago in Dunedin. Wow, and it's going to be amazing. Do they have computers there? They do. They do. I actually talked to a fishing guide over the phone um, for forty-five minutes. He get great guy. Uh, great guy. I believe his name's Casey, and he told me about the computer science program. Both of his uh, sons are studying computer science, and gave me the, the details about the fishing in Dunedin compared to Christchurch, and that's kind of where the two places I was trying to decide between. So there were multiple universities that you could choose from in this program? And this program is through Montana State? It's actually through CIS abroad. And uh, it was not on the list of the Montana State um, schools, but Montana State did accept it. So is this the kind of um, deal—I remember looking into
1: something like this before, and you pay Montana State tuition. You pay tuition to Montana State, and so whatever that tuition costs—
2: then now you go on this this program. Is that how it works? So traditionally, that is how it works. But through this program in particular, uh, I pay them. And then my uh, credits, I just have to get them approved. And they they'll all transfer Do you get them to, approved before or after yeah, you take you, the classes? Before you take the classes.
1: <laughs> That's a good move. Uh-huh. <laughs> what do you mean nothing transfers? Oh, well, I had a
2: good time. <laughs> So, um, do you have any idea what your schedule is gonna be like? So I'm planning to take kind of the minimum amount of classes and I'm hoping to just be able to get out in the in the forest there as, as much as I can and explore New Zealand and kind of just give myself free time to do all these things that and so did I've this fishing guy that be.
1: you talked to did he seem to be encouraging that there is plenty of public water and plenty of of opportunity for you to go and find places to fish? Because, I mean, I don't know anything about it other than my super rich clients take helicopters everywhere. So I'm just kind of wondering, as a student, what does that look like for you fishing down there?
2: Yeah, so he said there's a fly fishing club that he encouraged me to join. And he said there's a ton of streams and tributaries around the area. The city itself is right on the ocean. So there's a lot of feeder creeks and stuff that... Running there from the mountains, and and do they do they have sea run fish? Uh, I believe so. But, wow. um a lot of see them, I've never heard about yeah. that in New Zealand. That would be mm-hmm. you get
1: those giant brown trout that they have there anyway, and then mm-hmm. they go to the ocean for yeah. six months and eat shrimp, and then they come back in there like a tank. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine it's just like that the sea run browns, mm-hmm. and then I never hear anybody talk about it in New Zealand. Maybe you going to take a spay rod with you.
2: Uh, I, I don't have one right now, but man, that's something I could look into.
1: Yeah. God, that sounds like an amazing trip. So, are there things that that university specializes in, that like
2: types of classes that you don't have an opportunity to take here, or is this mostly, I'm going fishing? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a combination of both, I'd say. And I plan on taking a, a cultural class about the Kiwi and Maori culture there, which will be super interesting. And I also plan on taking a photography class, some I've also been pretty interested in. And what better place to God, no explore kidding. that than than there? So, and then I also plan to take uh, a music class, which we. Uh, it sounds a like lot a, fun. That's, not yeah. the, that's not the bare minimum you could take. That sounds like at
1: least twelve hours.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, in order to keep my scholarship at Montana State, I have to do that. So. Wow. So, what kind of grades have you been getting in and in, uh, computer science classes? Have is that proven to be very difficult? Like, uh, sounds yeah, hard to me. So, uh, a lot of them are super hard. I've been able to maintain a good GPA, but I've kind of transitioned my mindset more recently to not care as much about the grade and care more about the knowledge I'm receiving, and that has been a tremendous turning point in my academic career because. Really, it's just much more of a joyful experience hmm. if you're focusing on, hey, what do I want to learn and what do I want to get out of this class, rather than what grade do I need to make. Right. Um, that really, just that mind sh- mind shift um, and mindset really is just beneficial to the soul and just beneficial f- uh, for your learning experience. And is really, when you make a shift like that, is the end result that you actually make better
1: grades or you know how like sometimes like they're talking about athletic performance and it's like you'll see a team play its very best when it's up by a lot of points and and it has there's no pressure and they're fluid and loose and playing Mm -hmm. great where you have the you you know when you have intense pressure like they don't want to make a mistake when you're up don't care if you make a mistake i mean you don't want Mm -hmm. to but but it's you're way more free like a a wrestler that's up by a bunch of points he's gonna probably end up pinning the guy where he's not afraid to take a risk and it sounds like maybe that could possibly be something that that you're experiencing like when you when you decide i'm going to consciously shift over to learning more rather than playing this game of school and learning what i need to learn to make a a on the test rather than learning what I'm very interested in, like it seems like almost. I don't know. I was kind of wondering if it ended up that maybe you're freer, looser, and you end up making better grades than you were doing before when you were afraid to take any risks.
2: Yeah, I'd say I I am making uh, a little bit better grades than I am I have before. And a story that goes along with what you're saying is, I was working on this AI project with uh, my partner, and we had to submit it at uh, eleven or at midnight, we submitted at 11.30, and he looked at me in the library and he said, do you want to take the unstuck-in-time approach on this with me? I was like, what are you talking about? He said, have you ever read the book Slaughterhouse-Five? And I hadn't. He said, well, why should learning stop at a deadline? And it just, that blew my mind. Wow. Just really, uh, and it's so true, why should it? And so we ended up working on this project that was already due. We had already submitted it. And we stayed in the library till 2 a.m. And we had the best time and learned. I learned more from that experience. Like you said, no pressure, just being able to truly dive into what you want to learn and want to, the knowledge you want to gain. And it was a tremendous experience for me. Wow,
1: that's super cool. And did you go back to your professor later and be like, yeah, that one we submitted at 1130, well, it turns out it kind of sucked. And, <laughs> I'd really like to put this –
2: because we've been working on this other thing all night, and it turns out everything we did was wrong. So we ended up uh, – <laughs> the algorithm we were working on ended up not – we didn't get to work by the end of the night. But uh, my partner said he's done that a lot and submitted projects after the deadline, and almost 90% of the time, the teachers still take him because they're well, so thrilled because yeah, the student actually right. cares about the knowledge.
1: Well, I mean, like, that's like – that's yeah. the whole – it seems like that would be the greatest reward for a teacher. Like,
2: mm-hmm.
1: wow, you guys sat in the library for another six hours after the mm-hmm. deadline because you wanted to. Like, okay, these are my students. I mean, mm-hmm. these are the guys that are going to take this knowledge and actually do something with it. I mean, I don't know. There has to be, there has to be some kind of a of a line that they have to hold. Like, there's a deadline, and everybody else submitted it by then but maybe there's some extra points or something that, that you could throw in there but that would has to be you know if a teacher is like well my teaching has has interested these guys enough that they're willing to put in all this extra work that's that would have to be very rewarding whether they could give you credit for it or not mm-hmm. seems like that would be pretty cool well man that that new zealand trip sounds amazing i'm wondering if you're going to come back <laughs> Turner. what do you think you think he's coming back
0: oh probably not (laughs) you meet some kiwi chick down there man just stay who knows knows?
1: do you think if you meet that one that turner showed me on instagram (laughs) she was like uh miss new zealand
0: yeah miss new zealand miss australia or something like that
1: i don't think you're supposed to get australian and new zealand people confused
0: they don't like each other i think
1: it's like alabama auburn I don't know if they like don't like each other. I just think that it's two countries that are like, like Canada and, and and the United States. Like I'm I from, think I am from
0: I don't I don't know. You're man. Like you're I, from I, Minnesota,
1: right? And he's like, No, I'm from Canada. Like
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know, man. Australia and New Zealand both seem seem pretty cool, but New Zealand has trout. Australia's got, Australia's some good got fishing, some man. trout, man. You went you. down to Around that Barrier Reef area, and
1: Man, cut few world records, didn't you? I tell you. Well, uh, yeah, that's where I cut my first world record ever. Uh, Queenfish.
0: It got pulled in by that <laughs> groper.
1: Yeah, that's somewhere, Hayden made that's that, somewhere uh, hidden deep Johnson. on the internet. Uh, <laughs> you can find me getting pulled in by, by a Queensland groper. Literally yanked in the water uh, as I was hand-feeding these things that look like uh, Goliath grouper. It, they, they are the, they're the, the Australian version of the Goliath grouper and they're just as big and I was feeding them these fish that and I had a really good grip on the tail of this one. <laughs> 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 and this fish came out from under the bottom of the boat and next thing I know, I was in the water and uh, it's it's on the internet. Somebody can find it, but it's pretty funny. Anyway, so I went to Australia, my one and only time to go to Australia and pretty much... Landed Sydney, then flew to Cairns, and had a few days to spend in Cairns by myself. And pretty much, almost immediately, I was kind of like, I could live here. (laughs) This place is awesome. There's only a few places. There's a few places in the world that I've gotten that type of feeling. Like, I don't know what it is about this area but particularly Yellowstone National Park gives me gives me this feeling of I, I don't know I don't I don't even really know how to explain it like I'm supposed to be there also like a feeling of peace and also like a feeling of power and I felt I felt it also in Hawaii and I felt it in Australia and certainly when I go to the Keys I feel it there but but I, I don't know it's it's weird when you go to a, a place that you've never been before and, and it almost feels like slipping on a pair of your most comfortable jeans, and you're just like, wow, this place is amazing. I mean, the people were awesome. The, the, what, what surprised me was that, how, how similar that part of Australia was to Florida. And it's almost like Florida turned upside down. And so the further north you go, the, the closer to the equator you're getting. So the further north you go in Australia, the warmer it's getting. All the way to the, to the peninsula, which is just like Florida and eventually the Florida Keys, that hangs off the north, and they call it the Carpentaria Peninsula, and then there's the Bay of Carpentaria, and that's where we fished up there. But from Cairns to there was kind of like driving from Orlando to the Keys. In the way that the vegetation changed, and and then as you went further, you got closer to the mangroves, and then it's full on mangroves, and then basically, you would see all of this vegetation there that was eerily similar to what we have in the Keys, but slightly different. And I also found that the Keys, uh, I mean that the that the fish we were fishing for there, it was the same kind of thing. It was like they had permit, but they were a little different. They had. Tarpon, but they weren't tarpon. They were this oxeye herring, and they didn't get as big. But they looked and acted just like tarpon. They didn't get they didn't get as big. And then we had uh, barramundi, which were incredibly like snook. And then there were like all these jack species, and then there was. This queenfish, which looked exactly like our leather jacket, which you're very familiar with because it put three. It, 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 Turner got poked by a leather jacket. when Poked? I got
0: smacked. <laughs> he
1: was a very young boy, and it seems as, it's very traumatic to him right now, but it did. They have these three dorsal fin spines, and I'll never forget this. Like somebody, Hayden or somebody, pulls in this little yellow jack, which doesn't get more than a foot long in the Keys. But it has these three nasty spines that stick forward like this, and when they're when they're in in stressful, know, situation. stressful situations, they poke them out like this. So this thing comes flying over and hits Turner right in the leg, and you know he was so young. I remember this so well. You were so young that there were literally, like as a parent, you knew every little boo boo that you had ever had on your whole body, like. And, and there were these three dots on his leg and his body was like perfect. There were no, he had not been cut, not very many bug bites, not very many, like, not very many bruises, not very many skin knees yet. I mean, he was really young, right? And you, like you, as a parent, you're just holding this perfect baby and you're changing the diaper and everything and you just, it's just perfect, and then it grows up to somebody that can walk around. It still hasn't really fallen down and skinned the knee yet. And so I just remember these three dots that this thing left on you for years. They were there and it was, it was like, oh, there's where the leather jacket hit him right in the leg. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this leather jacket has a cousin in, in, uh, in Australia that's called the queenfish. And you might get a chance. To, I'm sure they have them in New Zealand, too. They're very common, like Jack Gravel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was the first world record that I ever caught and also the first ro- world record that Dottie Ballantyne ever caught that went on to get over 100 world records. And it was this experience of this this Australian uh, fishing trip, which was just was just the most awesome place. And I bet that you're going to go to New Zealand and feel the same thing. Like, wow, I could live mm-hmm. here. In fact, I'm going to.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's cool, man. That queenfish is a cool fish. I got to catch one of those um, when we were over in Christmas oh, Island. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. that
1: was a – I didn't Right
0: think. after I broke off that big bonefish, man. Yeah. I, that that was something that
1: I didn't I didn't know. I didn't know queenfish lived in Christmas Island uh, because the first trip that – I've been there twice, once with you and once on another trip. We didn't catch any other species but bonefish and trewally. The first time I went there. And then when we did went there, catch we trivali? caught all kinds of stuff. The first time, yeah. How many did
0: you catch? Well, because we had a hard time catching a Travalli, well, man. Well, yeah.
1: So there's catching a Travalli, and then there's catching the one that we were you want to catch, which is like the 60-pounder that is right. just the giant Travalli, the big. We, we had a couple shots, and they're as black as that backpack over white sand, and and there's giant. And I have never done that. Hayden got one to eat, didn't he? Um, I think he got one. I, I'm.
0: I might be. It might have been someone else in the in that camp. Yeah. But well, I think someone
1: got a real big one to eat and didn't catch yeah, it. Yeah. And and even on that trip, I caught some smaller ones. You know, some that are like you know small jack creels and horsehead jacks and stuff like that. And uh, fine, nice, but but it wasn't the one we were after. I saw way more. The first time, but the first time that I went there, I got to fish with one of the most um, famous guides from Christmas Island that we didn't get a chance to meet or, or fish with this time. And his Moana and Moana—that's his specialty, big, big uh, GTs. And he has a—he has a. Uh, the first time that we went there, he had a, a boat and very few of the guides, if any, I think he might have been the only one that had his own personal boat, and it was a small little. Crazy looking little boat. It it was made by Hobie. I remember that, and it had twin, like ten horsepower motors on it. Twin motors, yeah, <laughs> ten and, horsepower. <laughs> yeah, twin tens, and it was just, or maybe they could have been twinning around the flats been on twin, that man. <laughs> it could have been twin twenty fives, but I mean, small motors, twins. And this little this little kind of molded boat that was Hobie, but I guarantee I'll tell you what, man, he could take that thing into places that nobody else could go and he was extremely successful at catching those fish and uh it was it was really cool. We didn't have that same opportunity in Christmas Island this year, but we, we did have some amazing- We did good.
0: We did we we got in that one flat that was ankle deep and we looked over and uh, hundreds of bonefish tailing. Yeah. That was cool.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing I, I mean, I'd like to go to Christmas Island again uh, because there's, I mean, I'm sure that there are countless other places in the world like this. I don't know where they are. This is the only place that I know in the world that you can literally walk 15 miles and stay in bonefish all day. We did it. We didn't walk 15, but we walked <laughs> what, what, all day well, it was double, double digits. It was all day and we started out in in ankle deep water and just just basically walked as the tide came in we just kind of walked on the you know a little higher on the flat and stayed in the same depth of water where we were with this wave of bonefish that was that was trying to get on the highest part of the flat. You <laughs> sounds just, like Christmas. Oh my god, it was incredible. You could just walk this as as far as you want. And there were the, the first time I ever went there, and I believe that it was there this time, but there was a map. You could see where you could connect this big flat to this flat over here, and then you could walk over here, and then you connect this flat to this flat. So the boat could drop you off here and go around, and you could actually walk the interior of this island if you knew what you were doing, and you could kind of stay in the shallower water. You could just walk it forever, and I don't, I don't know. I love fishing out of a boat, but there is nothing like the the feeling of just getting out there with a backpack and just, just walking. And it's similar to hunting. Yeah. It's so similar to
0: hunting. It's so similar to, to, I I mean, probably mule deer hunting, you know, because you're, you're, you're just looking at them and you're just walking along, waiting to see one. And then you finally see it and you got to be careful about how loud you are. You have to be careful about your profile. You got to make a good cast. It's, I mean, it's the closest thing to hunting that I've done.
1: Yeah, I know. And I, I think there's a big draw. There's a big draw to flats fishing from hunters. I mean, I see a lot of people that that I fish with are, are avid hunters. And there is the same feelings get stirred up. Like, you know, I hope he doesn't see me. Yeah. <laughs> I can't move. <laughs> um, And then, like... And then there is the, there is certainly just like archery hunting or whatever, you are in this position of being, being full draw and you're going to pull that trigger and that's going to be it. And you're, you're making that cast and you're going to make, you're going to let it go. You're going to let it fly and it is going to land hopefully in front of the fish, not <laughs> on them. And if it does, You know, maybe there's a hundred of them there sometimes and it's this giant explosion and it literally a giant explosion when they, when, when you scare the one, you scare them all. And, you know, same kind of thing. It's like, it's like, is now the time to let it go? Is now the time to let it go? You know, just even when you're shooting targets with archery, it's like, okay, you know, is everything lined up? Am I, am I doing everything like, you know, in a, in a zen type way that it's exactly like the last time I shot? so that this one is going exactly where i want it to go or you know is my is my draw hand you know not not in exactly the right place or am i uncomfortable or have i been holding this too long or you know what is it and i get that same feeling from from you know a fly cast and then you know at the time of is is this one the time to let it go and then maybe maybe now they come you you don't let it go and now they come a little too close and now
2: you've messed it all up but i mean i love that i love that uh situation i talked to this girl uh taylor short who worked at a fishing lodge in new zealand yeah and she's giving me some great advice and she's explaining the difference between fishing in montana and idaho and the west western united states to new zealand and she said it's completely different ball game out there you have to uh, you're mostly sight fishing, almost 90-95% of the time you're sight fishing, and you're probably not going to catch one if you don't see one. Hmm. And so you're hiking along these beautiful, in this jungly region with this pristine colored water, and you're, you're searching for these fish. And once you finally, finally see one, uh, you better get ready because it's about to be on. Your, your heart starts pumping, and you, you have to sneak up to them, hope you're wearing some type of camouflage clothing. And she said, even if you knock a pebble in the water, mm-hmm. they're gone. If yeah. you line them, they're gone. If yeah, you, I can yeah. imagine, man. Those
1: those things. It's been explained to me very similar, like that. On on the long days when we're not catching anything on the flats, <laughs> and my people that go to Argentina or go to New Zealand, they they tell me about their trip because there's nothing else to do because we're not catching <laughs> any fish. But I, it has been explained to me like that: that you you go until you find a fish, and then. Then you fish for it, but my that's my favorite type of trout fishing. I mean, I you know you drift in a hopper down the bank, uh, you know while you're in a drift boat, it's pretty nice and everything. But my favorite place ever to fish is um, is Flat Creek in the National Elk Refuge in right outside of Jackson, and, and that's what you do there. I mean, you're going to have almost no success just standing up, walking down through there, throwing throwing flies out into that river. But if you if you you know watch this long 200 yard stretch. And, and you don't, it's not immediate. You might watch it for 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden you see this, this head come out from under the bank and then go back in. And then you sneak up there on your hands and knees and then, then set up for what you think is going to be the best cast. And then just start working your, through the flies in your box. And then sometimes you go through basically every fly in your box and come back to the first one. I mean that's my favorite kind of fishing. It wasn't Hayden's favorite kind of fishing. Hey. <laughs> that poor kid. Well I think he would have liked it then, but I took Hayden to the south to the to the Flat Creek and um, On the worst day. <laughs> no, I mean it depends on how you look at it. I thought it was the best day. Well ver
0: I don't think he really grasped what was going on. All he knew is that he was cold and wet and I don't think he was catching any fish.
1: No, 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 no. We hadn't even started trying to catch fish yet. Um, we were still looking for them, and uh, and then a, a giant hailstorm came through, right? A summer, a summer Wyoming hailstorm where it starts to rain, and then you're like, ow, wow, what was that? And then here comes, oh, 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 ow, oh, shit. And then it's like golf balls flying mm-hmm. out, of the, out of the, well, not quite golf balls, more like marbles. Mm-hmm. And man, they were just pelting the crap out of us. And I think I had a cowboy hat on, which was doing, it was like a hard hat compared to Hayden, who had like a baseball cap on. <laughs> and he got, He didn't like it.
2: (laughs) Man, I got got caught. He would like it now, but he didn't like it then. I got caught six times this summer in in fishing while uh, it was hailing. And I caught a few while it was hailing. Really? Yeah. That's a good way to break a rod, I think. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I mean, you're going fast through there. Yeah. Marbles are falling from the sky. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Oh, I was huddling up in some trees. Yeah, some, it's crazy, though, yeah. in the
1: summertime when you look down at the bottom of your boat and it's all full of mm-hmm. ice. <laughs> that is, oh that's when you know it's been a good one. <laughs> There's
2: are some big dipping knots.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what it's like. But I don't know, man. I I, I got to say, boys, you guys, um very proud of both of you. I mean, you really have bucked the trend. You did something completely different. And, uh, you know... It's just, as a parent, and I'm not your parent, Brendan, but you've been hanging around my house, what, since eighth grade or something. I don't know, man, just to see you guys doing what you want to do and, and, and doing something that really, really makes you happy, and and not only that, but excelling at it and then working super hard in school or working super hard at 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 your work as an elk guide, like, that's incredibly rewarding it 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 is incredibly rewarding and just i mean really I don't know how anybody could ask for anything more i mean you're 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 offering a positive contribution to society you're not a burden you're you're doing exactly what you want you're super positive you're smiling all the time i mean that is i don't honestly i don't know how anybody could ask for anything more and it is really nice to see that that you know this is not the end. Like now you're jumping off to New Zealand and going for more adventures, and you're signing up for more elk hunting and all kinds of other things. And you are telling me all of the stuff you want to hunt. I mean, I just think I got, it's, I, got too many plans. <laughs> I just think it's, I just think it's so awesome. And and congratulations to you both for uh, for making it happen because you know there's a lot. there's a big difference between just sitting around wishing, looking at that painting over your bed, thinking that that is, that's the life. That's the life. That's the life. And there's really a big difference between doing that and then, and then really deciding, you know what, I don't really care if anybody else is going, that's what I want to do. And that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, right or wrong, I might not like it, but I'm doing it, you know? And and chances are if you feel that strongly about something you probably are going to like it a lot but it's it's really cool man to see you guys and to see see this friendship that you have to continue because you know it's been told to me before that if you can go through life with with one friend that you've had for you know most of your life that's you're you're really 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 lucky and you guys are you're on that path. I mean, you guys have been friends for a long time, and you got so many more adventures to go, but it's just it's just cool to see it, man. Kudos. That's,
0: that's, that's cool, man. Thank you. Um, yeah, I appreciate but, that. But, man, there are a lot of times where uh, you kind of just look around and be like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> uh, <I> mean, welcome <laughs> you know, to my life. <laughs> You're out in the middle. You know, uh, I took my first client. I got lost. T- horribly, terribly lost. And <laughs> I was kind of looking around, and being like, "Man, like, oh, should I out here?" And well, uh,
1: <laughs> you're. I was going to find that uh, quote. That um, was that the one you posted
0: is. on your uh, Instagram about the corner.
1: No, I don't, I don't think I posted this one, but it's one of my favorite quotes. And and you're you know you're you're talking about being out there and and not knowing what you're doing.
2: But you know what? I have, I have a good quote what along is it? those lines. What is it? Worry is just the misuse of imagination. That one's good.
0: I like that. I like that. I don't know, man. I've been in a lot of situations where where I've been really worried, and then uh, I don't know if it's a misuse of my imagination. Sometimes it's you don't be
2: worried, like if you're out in the woods and and you get you, lost, yeah, get and lost, then you start yeah. seeing
0: bear tracks, <laughs> yeah. and you're like. Oh man.
1: <laughs>
2: uh-huh. But a lot of the things you worry about never happen. So. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean Yeah, you're right.
1: Well, so we'll end this we'll end this with this because because uh this is one of my favorites. It's one of the best ever. And it has a lot to do with what we're talking about, about you know, you're you're out there, you're doing it. You may be making mistakes, you may be you may not know exactly what you're doing, but you're you're actually out there doing it and it's President Theodore Roosevelt. It's not the critic who counts, nor the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause who at best knows in the end, the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat.
0: I like that. Yeah. Oh, I like it.
1: <laughs> it's one of the greatest quotes of all time. I think it and, is. And that's really, the uh, man in the arena, the man it? in the arena. Yep. And, uh, you boys are in the arena. You're doing it. And, um, yeah, you know, proud of you both. So we'll end it there.
2: All right, thank you. Thanks, Thanks for, for doing it. On. All right, boys. Until next week. Oh, well, tell us uh, how do people find you? Oh, uh, well, I have no social media. All right, You're off the grid, man. <laughs> off the grid. So if you want to email me, email me at bas nine eight two nine. Email.com. That sounds computer-generated. <laughs> and then what if people want to follow you?
0: Oh, uh, I got Instagram. I think it's Turner, Turner Roland 1, I think. Sage H.P. Outfitters, if you want to book an elk hunt. We're pretty, uh, we're pretty booked for the next few years, but um, we need to work, work something out. Uh, we're just hunting together, go.
1: But, okay.
2: And uh, I worked at the tackle shop on the Madison River in Montana, uh, last summer, and could be there uh, maybe next summer if I don't stay in New Zealand. So jump in and say hi. Uh, yeah. All right. We'll see you in Ennis
1: Man, thanks to our friends at Waypoint TV for all the support of the podcast. Go to WaypointTV.com, check it out. Send us some emails. Uh, let me know what you're thinking about the show. Let me know what guests you want to see. Uh, if you got any other comments, questions, concerns or you just want to strike up a conversation, send me an email, podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. If you got time, leave a review on iTunes. And until next week, man, we'll see you on the water.